You're listening to FundFlow, a podcast for emerging managers, offering insights into the journey of new and aspiring fund managers seeking to have access in a crowded market. Tune in as McGuire Woods partner and host, John Finger, is joined by guests ranging from first-time fund managers to proven emerging managers, experienced LPs poised to back emerging managers, and other key participants in the emerging manager ecosystem. Hear their real-world perspectives and gain actionable tips to help inform your strategy and position yourself for a successful fund closing. Welcome to FundFlow, a podcast for emerging managers. I'm John Finger, and today I'm joined by Neil Keegan, co-founder and CEO of Marlin Spike Partners, the general partner of the Marlin Spike Disruptive Technology Fund. Prior to Marlin Spike, Neil was the CEO and CIO of a single-family office. He is a Goldman alum and a U.S. Navy veteran. Marlin Spike is a specialist dual-use fund solely focused on investing in companies pioneering technologies that address core national security interests with massive commercial applications. As part of that, they focus on five key growth and innovation sectors, AI and analytics, autonomy, robotics, aerospace, and cyber. So Neil, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on. John, thank you so much and happy new year. Happy New Year to you and everyone listening. So maybe, Neil, let's start and talk about the firm's military background, expertise, and investing experience that led the group to the founding of Marlin Spike. Sure. Those are, those are great questions. And that's really the, the core of who we are, uh, if not the military background, somewhat of a military or, or mission-driven ethos. So for me, um, you know, you mentioned I was a Navy veteran. I'm a graduate of the Naval Academy and proudly served for six years of active duty. Uh, one of my other partners, uh, Chip Walter, uh, a little bit older, uh, was an, also a Naval Academy graduate. He was a P3 pilot, was in the Navy 28 years, uh, was a retired captain, which is an 06 at Major Command. Uh, then he went to go work with General Petraeus in Afghanistan. Then he followed the general to the CIA and was there for for eight years um, and then left the CIA after working with the, uh, the Innovation Center and very closely with InQtel to go stand up and run Northrop Grumman's VC program. Mislav uh, Tulisic, our chief investment officer and my co-managing partner, while not military, he certainly has a, has a military ethos and, and that mindset. Uh, he's a real get it done kind of guy and his background is in aerospace engineering with, with a deep expertise in investing in this specific dual use space. He's got about 15 years or so, uh, which pretty much makes him a dinosaur for this you know, relatively new space <laughs> of, of investing. We've got a few other folks in the team. Uh, Nick Snowd, he's our lone uh, West Point graduate. So we like to give him a, a hard time, especially around Army Navy week, uh, although they did win this year. So hats off to Army. Uh, after his time in the uh, in the Army, he was working in private equity, uh, doing a lot of work with Carlisle. Uh, so we were happy to have him uh, come over and join the team. Uh, Daryl Smith, one of our advisors, uh, another academy graduate, former Marine, uh, Wharton grad, was at Platinum Private Equity. So he's been a, a terrific member of our advisory team. And the other core members of the team, Tim Busby and Will Close, you know, while not military, again, have the same hard charging attitude and a focus on the mission, which is really to find these innovative companies that are doing something unique and innovative and solving challenges for national security, but also have 
the ability to create very innovative commercial applications and, and frankly, make, uh, make the world a better place as lofty as that sounds, but that, that really does, you know, get us excited in finding these unique companies. Absolutely. So let's maybe start with, you know, the conception of Marlin Spike and then how has it evolved from there to where you are today? Sure. Great question. And uh, I think we're always evolving and always changing, you know, hopefully for the better. Uh, and for me, it really started after you know, having run a family office for 11 years, being a generalist, you know, portfolio manager in, in running that company and, and having some, some great success and really enjoying that. Uh, but I felt like I was, I was missing this passion for uh, investing in things that were really important and impactful for me. So again, you know, technology, companies that are solving problems specifically for national security. I also like the, the asymmetry of these types of investments where there's a lot of downside protection built in when these companies have, um, you know, use cases for the intelligence community or the Department of Defense where they can get some early contracts some early wins, non-dilutive capital, and then really iterate. And then once their products uh, or services are ready to, to really expand into the commercial market, you know, they're, they're ready to go. So it really started with that investment mindset. And I, I knew having been on the other side, evaluating funds and, and being an LP, that to actually have a fund, we would have to have you know, a meaningful track record, a great team and the expertise in a particular strategy, in a strategy that uh, I think people would really care about and, and want to get behind. And so we started Marlins by Capital in the summer of 2020, really on a deal by deal basis. Uh, we had great success putting together uh, an SPV in a company called Palantir. We were, we were last money in. Uh, we had a great result, about a 3.7x in about six months, so over a 1,300% IRR, returned stock to our investors. And then you know that really opened the door to do more deals in our space. The deal flow was really incredible. We went on to do about 10 other deals over an 18-month period. Interestingly enough, you know, COVID was... I think an accelerant for us because we we did a lot over over Zoom. We were able to cover a lot of ground, and we moved pretty quickly to uh, to get a lot of deals done. And then as we were closing out 2021, you know, we were attracting some really good people and, and some great talent. And Mislav and I thought, you know what? I think we've got something here, uh, especially with some big mega trends that were happening with great power competition increased defense spending, uh, the need for innovation. And we thought, look, th this is a really interesting space that needs a lot of capital and needs a lot of innovation. So we were excited about you know, putting more capital together in a more formalized and efficient way in a fund versus being you know, deal by deal, you know, one at a time. It was just, wasn't really an efficient model to uh, attract and deploy capital as well as have a really great team around that. That's great. Well, I appreciate you touching on some of those indicators, right? Both internally, but then also in the market that it was really ripe for for the the fundraise. Although I did, I will say, I think we did pick the top of the market to, to push go <laughs> on the fund. So looking back, uh, I have no regrets, right? But I think um, it's interesting because I think we probably would be farther along with our capital raising had we pushed go a year before. However, it's a really fascinating time to put capital to work. And so I think when, when we look back in a couple of years, I think we'll be pleased with the, you know, with the grind of putting the team together, you know, putting capital out into a, into a 
you know, into a choppy market, you know, trying to make sense of what's going on in the market, getting the best deal. So I think when we look back, this this vintage uh, period of our of our fund one, you know, 22, 23, 24, which will be the bulk of the capital, I think we'll look back and we'll be pretty happy that this was the time we deployed capital. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting observation. And I think you're right about that in the sense that, you know, the cream always rises to the top, right? And so no question, it's a challenging period right now, but the groups like yourselves that are making through it, I think it's it's pretty comfortable to say that there's probably a good reason for that. And and you'll look back on it and uh, knock on wood, you will be having some great success. So I certainly agree with that. The military background, you know, I've, I've talked to both um, just in my practice, but then also on the podcast, a, a, a variety of different GPs, but the core military background that the team brings to the table, what are some of those attributes that you think have helped the team get through this challenging environment, but to your point, thrive in it as well? Well, uh, I think certainly having us having the ability to kind of lean on some of our experiences with, uh, you know, going through, you know, challenging times at the academy and then, you know, certain situations in the, in the military, but look, you always fall back on your training. And that's why I think, you know, it makes you know, United States, uh, the fighting force, you know, the men and women out there that are protecting us. I mean, they train, they train, they train. And, and that's really why we're so good. And so, you know, I think a lot of us have really, you know, reverted back to our training. And, and then why do you train? Because you have a mission. And we're, we are, you know, to a person on the team, very mission driven. We're, we're very unified in what we want to do. We know that we're making an impact every day. We're finding these companies that are, that are, you know, moving the needle and can really make a difference for our country and then ultimately create these really innovative, fascinating commercial applications. So everyone's excited about that. And the neat thing is that, while we've got a unified mission, we've got complementary skill sets and, and we lean on each other. And we, you know, we have this term, we say, you know, one Marlin spike. So we win together, we lose together. We're in the foxhole together. And that's really the, the ethos that we have at the firm. And, and we're attracting that type of talent. And that's what, that's what really drives and motivates the team. The second thing beyond mission driven is, you know, we have this phrase called, we call it expect to win. Uh, and that's something that I, I learned, you know, while at Navy, that was a slogan we had on the lacrosse team. Now, we didn't win every game, but we went out, we prepared, we hustled, we worked hard. And every time we hit the field, we expected to win. And so we take that same ethos into everything that we do. You know, our country, our companies, our team, you know, again, we might not always win, but we're going to be prepared. We're going to be ready and we're going to expect to win. And if we don't, we're going to learn from our mistakes. We're going to iterate. We're going to get better. And we're going to get back in the game and we're going to come back stronger. And then lastly, uh, another good one that um, personally I, I like is uh, I've got a flag in my room uh, that says, don't give up the ship. And so you, you may or may know this, but this is kind of a famous naval rallying cry. And it goes back to the, to the War of 1812. And the U.S. Navy was, was really in its infancy. And we were outmanned, outgunned, uh, and you can say outclassed in terms of ships by the, at the time, the mighty Royal Navy, but we ultimately prevailed. And so every day, you just can't give up that ship. You just got to keep at it, keep going, and to be persistent. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Clearly, in developing your strategy, 
the team is playing to your strengths, which is obviously, I think, one, differentiated you, but but two, also been part of your success. Maybe talk a little bit about the dual-use technology component of your strategy, how that was crafted and ultimately implemented to date. Sure. So, you know, dual use is pretty fascinating and it's, it's really, it really goes back for, for decades, right? So if you think of the early stages of the internet, I mean, this was a creation effectively by the precursor to, to DARPA. A lot of, you know, things we use in everyday life that are ubiquitous, even the touchscreen phone, the, the internet, you know, radar, uh, think about the whole space uh, infrastructure. I mean, these were all really military innovations that ultimately got into the commercial landscape. So uh, it's been around for a while, but in terms of uh, an investable asset class, it's it's relatively new and in, in gaining a lot of uh, gaining a lot of traction. I think we were you know a little earlier to the space, and you know again attracted by the mission of it. So can we can we find these really unique companies like Voyager Space, for example? Is one of our companies. They're a space infrastructure company, and they want a contract to build the next private space station. So, for those of you that might not know, the International Space Station is old. It's it's really falling apart. It's coming to the end of its life. And if we don't have an answer for that, then the only other space station that's up there right now is the Chinese space station. So, we need to have uh, an answer for that. So, we get to do this. We get to invest in a really neat company like this that is uh, making a real difference for national security and, and frankly, for humanity. And secondly, you know, this disruptive technology for us, it's every day, it's really fascinating. It's this combination of, you know, unique founders and what we like to say is investing in the best of the bold. So we find these, you know, great entrepreneurs like Alex Fielding and Steve Wozniak, the co-founders of Privateer Space. So they're, they've created a company where they're going after the issue of orbital space debris and how to map that. So really, if you think about it, they're creating a space data company and we get to work with innovators like that. And, you know, it's fascinating to, to be able to, you know, be part of that, that growth and to really then help them along. And then lastly, I mentioned a little of this at the, the top of the podcast is the return focus. We really love the, uh, the asymmetry of it, where there's a lot of downside protection built into these companies where they're getting early wins and then ultimately can scale uh, in a huge way on the commercial side. And a, and a third example of that would be Elroy Air. It's one of our portfolio companies. This is a, a cargo drone company. So it's fully autonomous, hybrid gas electric, can uh, fly 300 miles with a 500-pound payload. And it's got multiple use cases. It's got use cases for the military, for humanitarian causes, and also commercial now they got started out. They won a three million dollar contract with uh, with the Air Force to you know continue to build the, the prototype drone to get to the full flight envelope and to establish the the mission. And as they continue to progress, they've got a huge backlog of orders over two point three billion in orders with commercial customers like FedEx, CVS, and Raven Alaska. So those early early revenues and early contracts give a company like Elroy. The chance to get through their full light, their their full flight envelope, and then scale into the into the commercial side, and so that's where we see it from an investment perspective, downside protection, but really nice upside. If we can, Neil, I'd I'd love to just circle back on the the space piece 
one for my own benefit, but two, I don't think we're going to have someone else on this podcast anytime soon that that has the expertise here. I'd love for you to just share even just those most basic um, observations, right? You talked about the International Space Station, but any other core observations just around space that you might be able to share with the listeners? It's, you know, right, it's we, we all see the headlines. I think the reality is a lot of us don't have a good sense for some of those core issues. Anything else that you might share with the audience? Uh, sure. It's look. It's a it's a great topic, and it, it's super fascinating. You know, it's a, it's a personal passion of mine, and you know, we're we're right here in the DC area, and uh, I took my kids to the National Air and Space Museum. There's actually two. Many people don't know this. There's one downtown in the mall, and then there's one out um, in Virginia, Northern Virginia, and it's a huge hangar. So if you ever get a chance, you should go. And one of the really neat things is they actually have a space shuttle there. Uh, I believe it's the Discovery. And it is spectacular when you get up front and you can actually, you know, look at this magnificent creation that that we created. And so I think what I think has been fascinating about space just over the last, call it, you know, two decades is, you know, after the, the space shuttle program got shut down, we really didn't have a way to get to space. And, and my hat's, hat's got to go off to uh, Elon Musk and the team at SpaceX for for really proving that we could get back to space and we could do it in a in a fast and efficient and a much cheaper process, really led by the private sector. So he, he put it all on the line and created SpaceX and they proved that we can get back to space and, and do it in a smart and efficient fashion. So I think the the last decade has really shown us that the launch costs have really come down dramatically, which really open up the whole space economy. So I think, you know, that decade is all about getting to space. So I think the next decade is going to be about you know, what are we going to do in space? And that's why, you know, we really liked Voyager Space because it's an infrastructure company. They're a holding company that's, you know, buying companies that are operating in space and generating revenue. These are real companies. These are companies that have hypersonic missile propulsion systems. They have robotic arms. They, they, they own an airlock on the space station. And, you know, when they build their space station, they're not going to be the only one. So effectively, I, I think that we've learned as a country that it's better to have the private sector involved. And it's, it's better if we don't have just Voyager Space have a space station. We have, you know, Blue Origin with Jeff Bezos and team. They're building a space station as well, Northrop Grumman. So I think that the future of at least space stations uh, in the near term, we're going to have a series of outposts instead of just one uh, international space station that we have to share, which incidentally, you know, obviously we're sharing with the Russians, which is problematic now, but a series of privately owned infrastructure uh, space stations out in space, which then give us the ability then to get to the moon. Once we get to the moon and can operate efficiently there, you know, on to Mars and beyond. So it's just fascinating to be part of this, this world of this ecosystem which I, which I only think is gonna is gonna grow, and and that's not just our belief. But if you look at a lot of the research out there, I think it was Bank of America that that thinks it's gonna be a trillion dollar economy by the end of the decade, and uh, and they might be wrong because it might be bigger than that. That's great. Thanks for that, Neil. I'd like to shift a bit towards uh, the fundraise side and thinking about as you crafted the strategy. What were the most important considerations for Marlin Spike when 
pursuing and then choosing LPs to partner with? Sure. And look, what we say here is that, you know, for, for Monospike to be successful, we need three core things. You know, number one, we need phenomenal LPs to be our investors. We need incredible investments because the investment returns are going to be the lifeblood of, of the franchise as we go forward. And then three, you know, operationally, we need to be operationally excellent and, and make sure that we're really, you know, running this organization, you know, as, as smoothly and efficiently as possible. And if you don't have all three, it's just not going to work. So we needed to have the right, the right team in place to, to credibly go out and, you know, frankly, ask for money because we're, it's a big ask. You're asking uh, an investor to tie up money for a long period of time. You know, we're a seven-year fund with two one-year extensions. So call it nine years at the latest. I mean, that's a long relationship and it's a big ask. It's a big trust us ask. So we were fortunate that with our early success, with our, you know, deal by deal and, and SPVs that we had a, a really good group of investors that, you know, had success with us, believed in us, got to know us. So we went to them first with the idea of the fund. And we were very fortunate to have uh, an anchor investor say, I believe in you. We're going to back you. Uh, they brought other investors to the table. So we we got out of the gate with with what we knew was going to be a good first close, having some, some great anchor investors that would then help us put capital to work early. And our, and our strategy was not to go out and raise the fund and then close it and then do make investments. Our strategy was to continually raise, do rolling closes, and then demonstrate that we were we could operate and execute as a team and find these great companies and make great investments. So we wouldn't be anywhere without our LPs, and especially our LPs that were that were there early for us. Because now, when we're meeting new folks and we're spending more time with with institutions and endowments, they've got a good look at, at who we are and how we operate, and can you know look at the deals and how we underwrite and all the deal memos. So. Where we are today is dramatically different than where we were, I mean, just a short year ago. Sure. So thinking back over the past 12 months, what were the most common reasons that LPs were hesitant to invest with you as a first-time fund? So and I think for other GPs that are out there with, with first-time funds, these will be these will be common. You know, number one, uh, length of track record. So, you know, some folks want to see a full investment cycle and that's, and that's totally fair. And so we started really in 2020 with the pre-funded investments and you could look at that as really fund one, uh, although it wasn't really put together in a portfolio fashion. So we didn't want to be disingenuous by saying that's, that was fund one and this is fund two. So those are relatively early investments. And although we've had success, I mean, these investments need, need time to play out. So the, the track record is good on the realized and unrealized side, but you know, some folks want to see it all the way through and, and we get that. Two is size. So we've had good success with some larger groups that you know, haven't really had much exposure to this space, but really like it for you know, a lot of the reasons that you might suggest. Huge tailwinds. I mean, the, the National Defense Authorization Act was $858 billion, right? So there's a lot of money coming into this aerospace and defense space. A lot of it's going towards innovation. This is, you know, recession resilient. There's low correlation. So there's a lot of things to like about our space in general. But, you know, on a, even on a $100 million fund, some groups want to write a $20 or $50 million check. And they're just like, look, hey, come back when you're at 250 on fund two or fund three. 
but we want to track you and we want to follow you. So while those messages are hard to hear, it's fine. It's just part of the game. And, and we're committed to you know building those relationships because again, for us, this is a franchise and we want those folks to you know take the time to get to know us. And sometimes it, it could take years to develop those. And then uh, I guess the last thing is you know, maybe just the general hesitance to you know work with a team that's new. It just takes time. We've had good success in the family office space and we've had good success in different pockets of geography. And, and we've made commitments to to go back to places like Dallas and St. Louis, uh, where we've got, you know, a, a good group of LPs and, and people that really get what we're what we're doing, get what we're all about. So we make a commitment to them and we keep we keep going back and we make a commitment to that particular geography or that that town or that area. And we go back and we get to know our LPs because they need to know us and we need to know them. But it just takes time. Sure. You mentioned the team aspect, and I think it's always a bit more nuanced than that. Sure, you're not a team that spun out of XYZ private equity and had been working together for 20 years. But how did you approach that question about effectively how is the team going to work together and and how do we underwrite that? Sure. So, you know, for us, we actually have been working together for for a number of years uh, for like Elroy Air, for example, that was really the deal that brought the executive team together. This is a company that Mislock, my partner, and he's known the CEO for four, almost five years. And we had done another uh, counter drone company together. And he said, hey, you really ought to look at, at Elroy Air and get to know, you know, Dave Merrill. And so we did on his suggestion, which led to us making a $3 million commitment in their safe round. We ended up leading and pricing their A round and, you know, some other notable investors came alongside us like Lockheed Martin and Prosperity 7, which is Saudi Aramco's venture arm. Uh, and ultimately we, we put them in the fund as well. Alongside that, you know, Chip Walter, our other partner, he was at Northrop Grumman and he was looking at, at uh, Elroy Air and they were spending a lot of time with them and they really liked them. And what was interesting is that, you know, at, at Northrop, he's got a bench of 40,000 engineers that he can, he could tap into and he's still got great relationships. And, you know, one of the neat things about our, our ecosystem is that it's, it's unlike buyout to some degree where it's winner take all. And with a lot of the other folks that are investing in this, in this space, they're also mission driven. So we like to have other smart investors, smart collaborators. So for us to, you know, work with the Northrop Grumman or an L3 or AQTEL, I mean, that's, that's just what we do. So those relationships are, are very strong. And I realized from working with Chip, even when he was at Northrop, that, wow, this, this, is, the, this is the guy that we need to have. And Misloff, who was CIO at, uh, at AIM-13, I was like, wow, this, this guy has such deep industry expertise that, you know, this is the guy that I need to partner with. That really put together is a pretty powerful combination that I think mitigates a lot of risk because it's not like we're right out of college and we came up with a great idea in a napkin and we've all been, you know, we've been around the block, uh, I guess more than a couple of times. And, and this is what we really want to do. So I feel like this is our, we want this to be our last stop uh, and we're all chips in and we want to make the, the biggest impact. And I think when people get to know that, get to know us, they can kind of see that and feel that and smell that on us. And it, it goes a long way to build trust and confidence. Absolutely. So recognizing a host of complexities involved with raising a first-time fund, 
What are some teachable moments you and the team encountered along the way? Whew. Uh, that might go beyond the uh, a lot of time, John. <laughs> many, many teachable moments. Let's see. Well, I think one is you, you just got to keep pulling, especially as it relates to raising capital. So I'll kind of focus the, the comments around that. You just got to keep pulling threads, I think, you know, and follow the energy where, where you've got some traction and you, you find folks that really understand and want to understand what you're doing. You got to keep, you just got to keep going and you can't be shy. You've got to ask for, you know, who are the other people that would have interest in what we're doing? Or do you have other investors that you want to bring to our you know, event or could you share our, our podcast with them? So it's about kind of building that ecosystem and continuing to ask. And when I look at our current investor base, they've all really come from, you know, trusted sources and trusted referral. It's hard to go cold and, and just expect someone to to write you know a meaningful check so i think it's that continual building of of relationships is, is really huge the, the second thing that i think we've done well is that there's this phrase called the the ooda loop Are, have you heard of that i have not so it's it's somewhat of a military term and, and i'll tip my hand to uh he's an air force colonel john boyd and uh ooda is an acronym and it stands for observe orient, decide, and act. And so the, the parallel is if you're in a in a situation like with a foreign adversary, if you can get inside of their their planning cycle or their decision loop, that's that's when you win. And so what, what we try to do is, especially if we're talking to sophisticated family offices or institutional investors, we really try to dig in like, what's your process and what do you need and how can we help you be successful in understanding what what the decision matrix look like. And so, for example, if they will ask for sample um, sample memos that they put together for managers, and then we'll replicate it and basically give it back to them in their format that, that they want to see. So it is a lot of extra work, but we found that if you can make it easy for people to digest and understand and, and put what we're, what we're putting together the way that they want to see it and the way that they can understand it and what's most important to them, then we found that we can achieve success uh, in, in a quicker fashion and with a higher probability fashion. That's great. You know, over the past couple of years, as this emerging manager ecosystem and environment has evolved and changed as it always does, I think it's definitely important now to have a true specialization as an emerging manager to differentiate yourself and then also to make it where someone feels like they have to say yes uh, to coming into your fund. What do you foresee for the future as it relates to LP's willingness requirement to invest with emerging managers that have a unique specialization like Marlin Spike? Do you see that continuing? How do you see that changing? Yeah, I think anecdotally, I, I do think there is a renewed interest in specialists over generalists, smaller funds over larger ones. And I think as, a, as an allocator, at some point, you, you've got to take some risk, right? Because I think that it, it's been proven that emerging managers can put up really spectacular returns. And it's not really a surprise if you think about the incentives. The incentives are totally aligned because we know as a team, if we don't put up great returns, 
there's not going to be a fund two or a fund three. I mean, forget about it. So you couldn't be more aligned and you couldn't find, you know, a team of individuals that's hungrier for success and for doing things the right way at that, at that first, second and third fund, but primarily the first fund. So I, I think it's that unique mix of experience, but also energy that the team that really any emerging managing team needs to bring to the table. And I think you've got to, you've got to have that. And I haven't met any, any other GPs that are emerging managers that, that don't share that same drive and passion because you have to have it because it's, it's hard. I mean, it is not easy and not everybody's going to make it, but at least you want to be able to look yourself in the mirror and know that you gave it, you gave it all you got. What, as you think about the future of the emerging manager ecosystem, what changes would you hope to see in the coming years? Well, you know, I'd actually like to really see that for folks that say they're doing emerging managers to actually then back it up and do it, uh, or maybe be a little bit more transparent about their process, because I think they would probably save themselves a lot of time and uh, the managers a lot of time. So I think that's probably the number one thing. And so, for example, if there's an emerging manager conference, I think you know, clearly you're going to attract GPs that want to meet great LPs. But for the for the LPs that go, they probably shouldn't go unless they're really open for business. And then if you're open for business, you know, maybe be just very transparent and maybe even put it on your web page of, hey, Here's what we're looking for. Here's, here's the process. Here are the steps. Here's the time frame. And if you think you could be a fit, let's have a conversation. If you're not going to fit these this criteria, then come back when you're ready, which I think is totally fair. I mean, I think that would be really powerful for the uh, emerging manager and, and, and LP ecosystem. That's great. Well, Neil, you've touched on a lot of really strong and insightful nuggets along the way. But maybe just as a close here, what pieces of advice would you give to someone who wants to raise their first fund, maybe has an idea and an expertise and wants to put it into action? What are, what are some additional nuggets that you could provide to the audience? Sure. And look, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. So you've got to really commit and fully understand why you're doing it. And you just got to have that fire in your belly to do it. I mean, you also have to, you know, make sure you've got staying power. You're going to have startup expenses, your GP commit, you got to take care of, you know, care and feeding on, on the home front. And these are some tough decisions and you're asking for long-term money. So you better be ready for a long-term ride and you've got to be able to see it through. You've got to enjoy who you're working with and you've got to, as crazy as it sounds, you've got to enjoy the journey every day because there's ups and downs every day. So you've got you've got to buckle your chin strap. And one of our other CEOs, uh, Nathan Kuntz from Rendered AI, has actually encouraged you to follow him on LinkedIn. He's got this great series about being an entrepreneur. And basically he says, look, when the going gets tough, you have to think about it and say, you know what? We get to do this. I mean, this is an opportunity, even though it's hard. And, and I think that's right. Because, you know, every day I'm excited to come to work with my team, our investors, our portfolio companies. Because you know what? At the end of the day, you know, we're on a mission, we're making an impact, and, and we're completely aligned to put up great returns. So I think if you don't have that mindset, that this probably isn't the, the game for you. That's great. Well, Neil, thank you for joining us today on Fun Flow. 
and sharing your great insights and experience. I appreciate your time. I appreciate everything you and the team are doing within the ecosystem and in particular with your truly wonderful and differentiated specialization. And I appreciate our listeners for joining us and hope you join us next time. Well, thank you so much, John. And I look forward to seeing you in Dallas soon. And uh, I look forward to coming to the conference in May. It's going to be a great one. You put on a, a terrific event. And, and thank you for, for doing this for the Emerging Manager ecosystem because, uh, you know, we need great sponsors and advisors uh, out there like you that, that really help. Because at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're putting up a capital, we're putting capital into companies and, and these companies have real people that are working there. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of good people out there and, and great entrepreneurs that, that need the emerging manager ecosystem to fund these innovative startups because together everyone's making an impact. Thank you. Thanks, Neil. Thank you for joining us on this episode of FundFlow. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host John Finger at jfinger at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action. 